It's the start of a new year. It's 2023 and another episode of Waterproof Records coming at you right now. I hope everybody had a fantastic transition from 2022 to 2023. Mine's been really unique and interesting, and I'll talk a little bit about that up top. But um, before we get into today's episode, I hope everyone is doing fantastic, and I've missed you, thought about you lots, and I'm excited about all the things that are going to be happening this year on the podcast. We have a lot of guests. I've been talking to a lot of people about coming on the show, and I'm thrilled to bring them to you. Like I mentioned on the last episode, we're going to be digging into some different formats, as in not every show will be about a specific album. Like when I have guests on, we talk about other bands, other artists. Um, we kind of cover a landscape of music and not always focus just on one album. But uh, So in the new year, I'd like to try to do some episodes that talk about you know, maybe a year in particular or five or 10 bands that you might not be familiar with or something like that. So a lot of cool, exciting things coming your way, but it is time to dig into today's album that we're going to talk about. It's time to talk about Stone Temple Pilots Core. Let's go. Things are going to change. I can feel it. It's just going to be that kind of fun. That's it. Um, Let's begin. We are going to first and foremost talk to our sponsor and say thank you, sponsor. DistroKid, that's right. Thank you to DistroKid who makes this show possible and supports and sponsors Waterproof Records. Make sure you check out my VIP link for DistroKid, which is distrokid.com slash waterproof. No, slash VIP slash waterproof. It's in the description of the episode. I link it all over the place in all of my social media bios. So make sure you take advantage of that. That is 30% off of your first year of using DistroKid. And you're asking yourself, Jacob, what is DistroKid? You've talked about it before, but I've zoned out completely. Well, I actually have the website right here so that I can tell you exactly. So I don't flub in my over enthusiasm explaining it. So DistroKid is a digital music distribution service that musicians use to put music into online stores and streaming services. How's that? These include iTunes, Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube Music, Amazon, Deezer, Tidal, and many more. So hopefully that gives you a better um, example. I need to memorize that so that I can say it just off the top of my head. But right now I'm reading. But they basically, DistroKid collects earnings and payments and sends 100% of these earnings to artists minus banking fees and applicable taxes. Um, They have many benefits like automatic revenue splits, hyperfollow, lyric support, global time to release dates, and more. So those are just some of the things that DistroKid can offer you. Again, make sure you and check out uh, distrokid.com slash VIP slash waterproof. Get that 30% off for one year. I use them, and I have a lot of new music coming out this year that I'm going to be using for. All right, we've talked about that. So now we dig into Stone Temple Pilots Core. Um, if you follow me on social media, which more than likely you do, because that's how you found out about this show, uh, you probably seen that I did a video of dead and bloated. And in that video, which is only like a 15 second video, it's basically talking about it's showing hearing the song off of core 
with Scott Weiland's voice, uh, you know, singing quietly, and then it just jumping in with those roaring guitar and bass and drums and blowing me against the wall. And uh, I'm happy to report that uh, Robert DeLeo from uh, Stone Temple Pilots, the bass player and songwriter and uh, musician extraordinaire, has seen it. And he has reported back to me that he loved it, and he said it was sent to him many, many times, and that made me so happy. Um, I'm going to get a chance to meet the DeLeo brothers um, at Rock Camp. I'm actually going to Rock Camp, which is this really cool event in March in Los Angeles. It's been going on for 25 years, and at the camp this year are the DeLeo brothers from Stone Temple Pilots and from uh, Soundgarden, Kim Thale, and a bunch of other amazing musicians. So I'm going to get to spend like four days just jamming with those guys. And I can't believe it. My mind is blown. And uh, I got a chance to talk to him briefly. And I just basically said, you know, I told him about how big of a deal STP was for me. And this album in particular, Core, um, Stone Double Pilots was my first real live concert, my first live music event. I've been asked that question before. I've probably mentioned it on previous podcasts, but my first real big like music event because I feel like I went to other uh, whether it was going to go see, you know, a symphony for my school or going to go see maybe like a, a church artist or singer songwriter. Um, I'm sure there was stuff like that going on. But seeing a band. A band live. I think I was I was in either eighth or ninth grade, um, right around that time. I think it was 1993. And my parents, like I mentioned before, were a little strict. They we definitely my brother and I did not grow up in a household that was like, yeah, go see all the bands, uh, go see all the live music shows. And we really had to work our way up to it. Um, I think they were just nervous, like <laughs> about the the rock and roll dangers of rock and roll at the time, especially if you came from like a, you know, a, a church going Christian household about the influences from sex, drugs and rock and roll. Um, and uh, Stone Temple Pilots definitely, you know, came onto the scene with the with the, a song called Sex Type Thing. So it was definitely one that I didn't think that they would be allowing. But out of the blue, my brother and I had an opportunity to go to Mohawk Park in Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1993. I wish I knew the exact date, but I can't remember how the, this opportunity came. But it was one of those shows that was at an outdoor area. So I think there was a lot of room for you to go because there was grass fields. And uh, I remember us getting the chance to go. My parents said, it's okay. And my brother and I looked at each other. We were like, what? So we drove to Mohawk Park. I think we went with two or three other friends. And um, the bands that night were The Flaming Lips, Butthole Surfers, and STP, Stone Temple Pilots. And it was such an unbelievably exciting night. Flaming Lips took my breath away from the moment we got there. It was a fantastic show. This was 93, and I don't think um, I was that familiar. I can't remember if She Don't Use Jelly had come out yet or not. I think uh, it might have, and I might have known that. But they were an Oklahoma City band, and I'd heard the name kicked around a bunch of times, but I had never you know, seen or heard much by them, and they really put on an incredible show, and I was, I was smitten. Um, and then butthole servers, you know, they had that song pepper and, uh, you know, it was kind of a little bit of a, a weirder, different style of music and something that I, I definitely jammed out to, you know, when I heard it, but I wasn't there to see them. I was there to see STP. And when they took the stage, they did not disappoint. They were fantastic. They had so much energy, so much rock and roll. Uh, gravitas and it just it was everything I hoped it would be 
and more. And that really had a lasting uh, impression on me seeing that that show. And uh, so that's why I wanted to do Core. Core was a core album. I had it on cassette tape. I remember getting it on cassette. And I remember my brother and I on the drive home just headbanging to sex type thing in the car. And and I thought this would be a good one to talk about. Because one thing you should know if you didn't grow up during this time, they got a ton of backlash when it came out. It was It was a successful album. I think it was like number three, Billboard charts, you know, platinum, did all those things and got a lot of um, praise and loved it and hit songs. But there was a lot of really weird, um, you know, critical backlash from from journalists and, and critics, music critics. And it was because we were in the height of this grunge explosion. You know, we were in this this period where artists were being thrown at us left and right. And this was 1992 core released. Um, September 29th, 1992. So this had been about a year um, after things had been coming at us from Nirvana to Pearl Jam and Soundgarden and, you know, all these artists that were coming out left and right. And MTV was really jumping on the bandwagon and we were, you know, there were buzz clips and things. And so you were trying to decipher who's who's a big deal and who's here today, gone tomorrow. But I remember hearing sex type thing and thinking it rocked seeing that video and one of the first pieces of criticism that that song got was the lyrics were really kind of flipping the POV of about sexual assault and really trying to, to show how horrible and toxic and destructive it is, but singing from that vantage point. And when the song came out, I guess people were like, how could anybody write a song, you know, glorifying these actions? And and Scott Weiland and the band members would have to be like, no, that's no, it's it's uh, it's calling out how terrible it is and how terrible that kind of behavior it is and how we need to stop that. And, you know, that was the purpose behind the song, but it was completely misunderstood. But once it connected the dots and people were like, oh, OK, I guess you can write songs creatively from different vantage points to express a point of view. <laughs> so then people were like, oh, I guess we're fine with that one. Um, but that was the intention. Uh, Wyland had said many times over how much of a supporter of women and women's rights he was. And band members have even said, like, being out with him at a bar, you know, if Scott saw somebody talking shit to their girlfriend or whatever, he would get involved. You know, he would he would defend. He would get angry. He would get worked up. And it was like, uh oh, or, you know, is a fight going to break out? So he was definitely somebody um, that was a supporter of women and hated everything about that macho, you know, abuse and and uh, as we all should. And uh, it, it's fitting because in 1992, if you think about it, we were coming out of the the hair bands and the and the rock and roll and the kind of treating the women like property and and uh, just some of that culture. So it was something that was easily called out. And then only about. Six, seven years later, a lot of this crazy macho stuff would return with uh, with a little bit of the new metal. I'm not saying all the new metal um, made that happen, but it definitely brought out that bro behavior, which was always has always been a problem um, in hard rock and, and in music. Well, in, in general, I guess. But that's besides the point. So this album was produced by Brendan O'Brien. Brendan O'Brien is a famous record producer who produced... Uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers and Rage Against the Machine and Pearl Jam and worked a ton with uh, STP. 
And so this is produced by them. And it was recorded three weeks, I think, in San Diego. And that's really where the band came together. They're a California come together band. Now, Robert and Dean DeLeo. Dean DeLeo is the guitar player. Robert DeLeo uh, is the bass player. And they are brothers, and they're from New Jersey. They're originally from New Jersey. But they came out to California, out to L.A., and this, this part of the world when they were 18, um, you know, following their, following their music dreams. So those guys were from New Jersey, but I believe Scott and the drummer Eric Kretz were both from San Jose. But the band came together, I think, in the late 1980s, and there's a couple variations. There's a, a few stories where Robert, I, I read a story that Robert and Scott met each other, um, I think, seeing music and, you know, playing live music and then figuring out that they were both dating the same girl. <laughs> so I don't know. You know, I think that was one account from uh, Robert's perspective. And then and then Scott years later would say he met Robert because he and his band. Um, what is that? Soy Descent. Yeah, I think that band. Uh, they had seen Robert play and thought he was great and wanted to get him. But um, I like the idea that they, you know, hung out, talked music, went and saw these bands play, played in mutual bands, and then found out they were dating the same girl. And uh, and then she moved away, and they moved in together and moved into her apartment that was vacated. And that's kind of where the beginning comes together. And it starts out initially. It's Eric Kretz, um, Robert DeLeo and, uh, Scott Weiland together. And they're calling themselves at the time, mighty Joe young. That's the name of the band. They convinced Dean DeLeo to join the band. He had it. There was a different guitar player in at the time. And I think that the, his proficiency and skill just wasn't quite at the same level. And when Robert convinced his brother to join the band, that's when the, the four is complete. And that's the lineup. That is the main primary lineup of Stone Temple Pilots all the way through until they they break up in 2013, and that is you know Scott Weiland, Robert DeLeo, Dean DeLeo, and Eric Kretz. So we get them coming together, and they're they're called Mighty Joe Young. But uh, apparently there was a blues artist at the time going by Mighty Joe Young, and so coming up with the band STP, the name STP, it was all about um, the sticker, the, the STP sticker, that that oil, you know, that famous logo STP. You'd seen it on cars, you'd seen it on drag races. And they were sticking to that as they wanted to have it. And I think I've read, um, I don't know if it's true. Uh, maybe I can ask Robert if it's true. But er they were trying everything from sticky toilet paper to vulgar word warning right here. Shirley Temple's pussy. Um, all, all sorts of things like that. Things that you come up with when you're 18, 20, you know, 21 years old in a band with a bunch of guys. Um, but then they landed on Stone Temple Pilots, which I don't think had any... Meaning per se, it was just a you know one of the th things that worked with STP, and now you you hear it and you think of it as a completely normal turn of phrase. Stone Temple Pilots, it makes perfect sense. Of of course, there are pilots, and they are stone and near temples. I don't know, <laughs> but um, core really comes out at that time that people are ready for more amazing music, and the the red pens are at the ready to make their comparisons. And what was their first comparison right out of the gate? It was really pairing Scott Weiland next to Eddie Vedder because they had these rich baritone vocals. And if you listen to more than a few seconds of STP, you can very, very clearly hear there are vast differences between Eddie Vedder's vocal style and Scott Weiland's vocal style. Both great singers. 
But Scott Weiland is a phenomenal singer of his own. A fan, I mean, fantastic. If you isolate and listen to the vocal performance of Plush or, you know, some of the work that he put out over the years, he really had an incredible voice. Um, there's a solo album of his where he has a song called Barbarella. And I mean, I, that song still blows me away to this day. It's wonderful. He had such a unique vocal skill. And Scott Weiland was different than a lot of his contemporary vocalists of the time in terms of how he pursued being the frontman of a rock band. He loved it. He wore the big boas, the giant sunglasses, the Jackie O sunglasses. He wiggled and writhed around the stage like a snake. You know, he had that like Jagger swagger, the... You know, he did all those things that that somebody who really harnesses and channels a front man's role to be a performer and just get into it. And the band did, too. It was a rock band. These were guys that grew up on Zeppelin. And uh, I think there's Prague influences in there. Bands like Yes and um, King Crimson and all these rock and roll, The Doors, all that influence, you know, the showmanship of the doors, Jim Morrison, it was there. It was there with Stone Temple Pilots. You could see it. And you've got guys like Kurt Cobain who did not want to be a rock star. You had these these introverted kind of front men that would shy away from the microphone, that would look awkwardly down at the ground. Uh, Eddie Vedder even, you know, and that was not Scott Weiland. He was a force and we were sad that he died of a, um, you know, an accidental overdose in 2015. It was one of those deaths that I wish we could all say that grew up with this band and watching his career that we didn't see it coming. Scott Weiland was somebody that when we were losing singers and performers to drug overdoses from the nineties, he was on the list. You know, he was one of those people that if you sat around and we, Lost Lane Staley and we lost Shannon Hoon and we lost, you know, we lost these singers, the sublime. And we realized we're like, well, Scott Weiland has notoriously struggled with heroin and drug addiction. And when he would be clean and sober, you'd be relieved. But then when when evidence of him going back would would happen, you'd be like, well, it feels like a matter of time. And it it sure was. And it's interesting because you look back on that time and we like I've said on the show before, we've lost so many of that generation um, to drugs and suicide. And it's heartbreaking when you think about it, but he left behind an incredible legacy of music. And uh, like I was saying, they were getting those comparison to these other bands, but if an album is coming out in September 29th of 1992, they were not basing off of, you know, they weren't basing this album off of their contemporaries. They weren't basing it off of the grunge explosion. These guys were writing songs based on the the likes and interests and the songs that they grew up with. You know, the sound that they brought together as the four of them was coming from the 70s and the 80s and that the music that they grew up jamming out to. So just the fact that it had these similarities was because all of these guys and 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 women of the time they were coming from the same youth, the same stack of records and they were all pointing their skill and talent in a very specific way. And I think you could say that Stone Temple Pilots was a, just a riff 
hard riff driven band. You can you can hum and sing to yourself like the guitar licks and uh, rhythms of that band. It really really stands out. Um, anyway, I I I was glad I've talked about this one because. At the time, it really was a big deal for me. I listened to that that album over and over again, and it starts out with Dead and Bloated. So let's dig right into that. Everybody should know, and you might already know this, but Scott Weiland's voice that you're hearing at the beginning of that song, he is singing into Dean's guitar pickup. That's where his voice is being through. You know, that's a guitar that's turned up and the voice is being captured through the pickup. He's singing into it. I think out there, there is like a behind the scenes footage I think you can type in Google Scott Weiland singing into pickup and you'll, you'll see it. You can see the shot of him doing it, but you would put on that tape and you would hit play and it would be very, very soft. And then boom, here comes bam, bam, da, 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 da. and it just, it took your breath away and you're like, Oh hell yeah, this is going to be a fun ride of an album. And, uh, you know, that I am, that voice, it was uh, really stood out. But that song really sets the tone for what you're about to experience. Just a great rock and roll, you know, at its core. I believe the album was named after uh, like a reference to Adam and Eve and the core of the of the apple. Um, But I have the list of the songs right here so I don't forget, you know, what we're going through. Dead and Bloated. So that one really leaves its mark and you know where you're headed. Um, I believe the story behind that song, I can't remember how that one was written. I've read a bunch about the band and when the songs came together. It's worth mentioning that while they were creating a lot of the songs for this album, Robert worked at a guitar shop on Sunset, You know, worked at a guitar store, and Scott worked across the street from him. And I believe he was just giving rides to... Um, models going to their their photo shoots. So he had a little bit more flexible time so he could stop by where Robert was working and show him like song ideas and he would go over there and it was in a guitar shop so he could come by and be like, I was thinking of this and Scott didn't play um, an instrument per se, but he could hum and drum out melodies and stuff that he was thinking and Robert could just pick up a guitar and I believe that a song like Dead and Bloated was just like that. He would come in and, and, and say like, this is what I think, this is what I'm feeling and bring it all together. And it's cool to think of that, you know, because that's something I think that uh, most of us who've been in bands and played music with other people, that uh, that process is so cool when you're when you're bringing it together. And that's what, one of the things that as you dig into this band a little further, you get a sense, especially on this album, and I'm hoping it continued through, but the, how much of the shared um, voice there seemed to be in this band, that everybody was equally um, sharing uh, input you know, this is an idea. This is an idea I have here. Let's bring it. Let's Frankenstein it together. Let's take this and this and this. Let's pair them. And I know along the way, we've talked about a lot of these famous albums where it's like one person really takes control or this one, this one's these two and these two kind of sit out. But this was a very collaborative um, band and probably spoke to the success um, despite Scott Scott's drug addiction problems. They probably would still be playing together today. Um but then we move on to sex type thing, and that's the song that I talked about, about the controversy um, that was behind it, and the fact that uh, it was it was really hitting head on and calling out, you know, this macho behavior, the sexual assaults, and, you know, looking at the POV of a monster like that. But that part aside, what a riff. 
What an opening riff. Um, it's a really, really, um, and I believe this is the song that, uh, Dean DeLeo had written in his head when he was 16, that opening riff. I hope I'm remembering this right, but he was thinking of, or he was listening to, um, Led Zeppelin's In the Light, and he could hear on the main riff of In the Light, he could hear the in-between, like he could hear like a guitar riff in-between every note that Jimmy Page was playing, and it came to him, and that's where he came up with it. And if you go listen to In the Light by Led Zeppelin, you can play that guitar part, and you can you can be like, then start picturing the guitar part for a sex type thing as you're listening to it. And you can totally hear it weaving in between there. And I thought that was so cool. I was like, I can absolutely hear that riff uh, filling in the gaps of in the light, which is uh, just what a, what a cool thing to know. Um, But again, that's what I'm talking about, about this influence coming from the past, from these previous legends and huge bands before these guys were forging their own way, you know, being a San Diego, California band. And when they were getting these comparisons, like you're just cashing in on the grunge scene or you're you're sounding like these other artists. It's like, no, they were their own thing. It just so happened coming from same generation, same influences. And uh, it's what happens, you know. So I, you know, obviously I can't go in song by song. I don't know details about every single song in here. Um, but things like one thing that core has, it has like two musical interludes in it. And, um, you know, no memory is just this pretty ethereal acoustic thing that was written in the studio. Um, and this album, most of it is all live performance in the studio. I think the whole thing start to finish is just them jamming together and it being captured from live takes. And you can hear that energy in it, in there. You can absolutely hear that, but things like no memory, um, they write it, it's ethereal, it's dreamy. And then they, they realize they're like, that's the perfect segue into sin. The next song, um, and it's true. You can absolutely, uh, you can actually hear the how the tonally, the chords and everything kind of link to it perfectly. And I think that was just a happy accident. I think they had written the thing and then they're looking at it and like, that would, this would link to that so well. Before I get to the sin, Wicked Garden, I didn't mean to skip Wicked Garden because that is actually one of my favorite songs in the album. I love Wicked Garden. Uh, my cover band, my 90s cover band, uh, Temple of the Dads, we do Wicked Garden. It's a fun one for me to sing. I'm happy to say that as a vocalist, I can sing a lot of what Scott Weiland sings. Uh, he's right there perfectly in my range. When I was younger, I was much more high up there, had a high vocal range. But now as I've gotten older, um, I'm, I'm more there. Now, I'm sure there's like wailing high notes that he probably got to that I can't quite do until my voice is warmed up. But I like doing Wicked Garden. We do Wicked Garden off this album. And then we also do... Um, we also do sex type thing, and they are so fun to play. Wicked Garden is a fantastic song. I don't think I have any intel on that one. Sin, that opening guitar chord, that like kind of dissonant, interesting sounding guitar chord, it's very rush sounding. Um, it just sounds like a chord you've never heard before. Um, and I think that in the songs that Robert and Dean were putting together, you could hear that there were this experimentation. I remember learning things like plush and, and uh, trying to learn SDP songs and being like, what chord is this? You know, like what, where, where's my hand going? I don't even know what this is called. <laughs> Not that I ever was really that 
trained in music theory. And oftentimes I would learn chords without even knowing what letters they were, um, you know, what the official name was. But uh, anyway, that that uh, sin that opens up with that really great song, um, Naked Sunday. You know, that it's a really driving riff. And I read that the bass line on it, like Robert was doing like a James Brown type thing, this kind of funky thing in there. And you could totally hear that. It's so cool. I was listening to you know, he's like the way he's playing. It's got that James Brown funky soul to it. Um, then we get to Creep, which was a huge hit for the band. Huge hit. Um, there's so many. There's several big, big hits that came off of Core that would set them up for all the albums that would come after like purple and tiny music and, and a lot of the great albums that they had. Um, but this album just out of the gate for a debut had some killer, killer singles. Creep was not only big, but their performance on MTV's unplugged, they did a MTV's unplugged and really, um, creep, the version that was from the unplugged would get played almost more than the album version. You'd hear, I remember when I was, Growing up, I remember hearing them play the creep one uh, from the unplugged a lot of the time and uh, not the one off the album. But it's a it's a fantastic song. Um, the unplugged version is just as great where Wyland does that, you know, the little change the key think you're kind of neat where he does the higher part at the end. But um, that was a big song. And that was another one that when you talk about the core of the song, it's got this kind of Western, you know, country chords to it and then it's really Scott's flourish of vocal performance on top of that that makes that song what it is um, not discounting the other band, band members but that's a song that relies so much on the on the vocals you know and that's really a time where Scott's skill and ability shines um, piece of pie great rock and song that had an original title that was something else I'm forgetting what it was, but piece of pie was called something else initially. Um, and then we get to plush, good old amazing plush, which that's like a song that if you weren't familiar with Stone Temple Pilots, I feel like like if you grab somebody and you played some of that song or said, you know, the dogs will find your song. They'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know that one. That one maybe or I don't know, maybe you get the same thing with Vaseline or uh, Big Easy. They, I mean, look, they had a lot of hits, uh, but but plush, and that song, I believe the title comes from Scott Weiland. He really loved kind of putting texture in words, and plush is a word that you can feel it as much as you 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 hear it, right? Plush, it's like a it's a word that has so much texture to it. I think the band members were saying, you know, um, that was why Scott would say things like velvet revolver, you know, these these words that had textures to them. Um, but plush, you know, it's, it's jazzy in a way, those chords, the beginning are jazzy and, uh, it's, it's different. You know, those, those, again, those are a lot of those chords that you play and you just go, this is a really unique thing to throw in the middle of this rock song. It's a down tempo song. And I believe when they recorded it, um, the label Atlantic was like, this is, this is going to be a single. And they were out of the gate. They, they were saying that's going to be a single like first one and the band was like no no this is if this comes out of the gate as our first one it'll be like the one and done and so they buried it deep in the album and they didn't want it to be definitely not the first single and i think it was a wise choice 
because you do wonder if that was the only thing that came out, would it be such a big thing that then you wouldn't pay attention to anything else? We almost needed to have that build up to get to plush. Um, it was played a ton on MTV, a ton. I feel like I saw plush on every single time I turned on MTV for like a solid year. Um, it was everywhere. And when I was a teenager, that was a song to play when you were with your band. Um, I remember playing plush at birthday parties. I remember playing it on my acoustic guitar. I remember poking fun at the uh, <laughs> when the dogs would find her. You know, the whole the smelling of the dogs. Uh, that was always like a funny thing for us as teenagers. We would talk about the dog smells and so many jokes made about it. And I, you know, somebody wrote that it was about like reading an article or a murder or something. But then I, I read also that it was the band just filling in lyrics with like different things about the future and where they're going. And the, the fascinating thing about how a dog could know somebody was in, had just been in a room without actually seeing them and detecting them like that having the sense of like smelling somebody's presence or the lack thereof, which I like that more, you know, I like that interpretation more than like reading an article about something. And I, I like to believe that it was just, you know, creative and poetic license about plush. Um, and then you get to the wet my bed, which I have a very specific memory about this because I remember a couple girls in the hallways at school. I hadn't bought, um, core yet. I hadn't got it yet. And they were already talking about, you know, bands, everybody's trying to be cool and outdo each other. And I remember these girls talking about, um, this album and they were going, where's my cigarette? And they were doing that and they were laughing to each other. And I was standing there looking at him like, yeah, I had no idea what they were talking about, but they were laughing and doing this thing. And, and it was totally like them having this inside joke. And then when you get the album, you realize it's just this instrumental inter interlude on core where the guitar is kind of playing. And, and I believe it's just Robert and Scott in the studio at the time. Dean's not even in there. Maybe Eric is doing some noises and stuff, but it's very Beatlesy. It's very Jim Morrison. -y. It's very kind of like that experimental sixties, um, you know, goofing off in the studio, the clatter, the clangs, the sounds. I think Scott Weiland even is smoking like right up in the microphone. They're making noises and, and he's doing this like kind of Jim Morrison doors esque, you know, where's my cigarette, you know, uh, talking to himself. And uh, and so those girls, they were saying this to each other in the hallway. They were they were quoting wet my bed and making me feel like a dork because I didn't know. But then I went out and I bought the tape and I was like, oh, now I know. Now I can do it. I probably walked up and was like, yeah. And so where's my cigarette? And they're like, we're on to something else now, Jacob. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I actually think that they were good friends of mine. Um, but anyway, but that's the vague memory that I have about that. Uh, Cracker Man. Cracker Man was uh, Scott. Uh, Scott was living near Skid Row. And I think he was rooming with Eric at the time. And he would go down and have breakfast. And there was a homeless man living on the streets who went by the name Cracker Man. I think that's the story there. Um, so that was what the name of the guy. And then Where the River Goes, the last song on the album, an epic eight-minute song, eight-minute-long song. Um, and Dean had brought that riff in, and that is one of the first songs they wrote together as a band with Dean, now a member. So, um, yeah, I mean, 
you know, I don't always do this on the show. I don't always go track by track and kind of dig into each song and tell some fun facts. But um, this album, start to finish, is great. It's great. You know, if you don't mind those little interludes, they're short. But if you hit play, you can go start to finish and every song is a banger. It is. And the band would go on, you know, when I made the video for Dead and Bloated, I had so many people say, oh, no, Purple was the album for me or, or one of the other, you know, Tiny Music. And they would list all the ones that were had an influence on them. And I was like, well, I think that that has to do with what album you were introduced on. And I, I was a guest on a pod uh, uh, running run into the ground a couple weeks ago. And we were talking about um, Siamese Dream and and one of the hosts of the show was talking about how it didn't have as much of an impact on him. And I asked his age. And it was when he told me his age that I knew I was like, oh, well, that makes perfect sense. Because I think sometimes these albums came at the perfect moment in your life. And in 1992, when that's being introduced to me, it was the perfect moment. Perfect. So if you're a few years younger, a few years older, maybe it doesn't land in that in that pocket in your life. But that's what music has the tendency to do. And so many people have opinions when you share an album or a song and they say, well, this one's better or this one's better. And I'm like, no, that's not how it works. I want to really send that home to people. I think that we have to have a different way of communicating music. You can't say better or worse. You can say that this one means more to me. Or this one is better for me. Maybe you an addendum. But that's the thing. I, I don't think you can sit there and say Handel's Messiah is better than. It's like depends on when it lands in your lap. Depends on when your ears take it in. It depends on how heartbroken you are when you first hear it. It depends on if your parents just got a divorce as you're hearing the album. You know, there are so many factors as to why an album, an artist, a song, a beat means something to you. We own the music. They give it to us. Musicians give it to us. They write the song, but it is a gift. And it's how you receive it. It's how you absorb it. It's how you keep it. That means everything, everything. When I started making TikTok videos and I started doing this, people would say to me, they'd be like, you should do a video about how this song sucks. And I was like, never, never. I never want that to be the heart and spirit of what I'm here to do. Did I sit around as a teenager and talk about artists and songs that I thought sucked? Absolutely. Did I used to be a music snob? Of course. Did I used to sit there and frown and you know, ridicule uh, the, the, the interests and tastes of, of bands and artists that I wasn't into? Sure. But as I got older, I realized it was like, man, if something means something to you, you know, oh boy, that was a terrible sentence. If, if it means something to you, then there's a reason why. There's a reason why it connects. You know, did you, did someone you love die? And that was their favorite song. And maybe it's Spice Girls Wannabe. Maybe it's Creed. Maybe it's, you know, Bare Naked Ladies. Or maybe it's a Weird Al song. I don't know. By the way, I love all those artists. They all have a place. They all, well, Creed I've never been into, but I respect what they do. 
Um, but all the other ones, I, I, I can find merit into it. Um, but again, the fact that I'm not into something doesn't matter. There's plenty of bands that I'm just not into and it doesn't matter. But, um, that's the thing is that you just don't know about somebody's personal journey. And so I just, I always shy away from being hypercritical of what people listen to. I think I say this a lot on the show. I know when I had McLaughlin on, we talked a little bit about being a critic as opposed to an artist. And some people are just going to do what they do and and share their feelings and thoughts and emotions about what they like and what they don't like. And maybe there's a place for that. Maybe there is um, forums and places on the internet and social media for you to go and criticize or hate on things. And it's, it's cathartic and it helps you get through fine. But again, um, I'm, this is more of like a rant. This has nothing really to do with STP's core. It has more to do with just music in general. Because I think people have the tendency to say something is better than the other. And I just don't know if that's ever true given the human experience. But rant aside, STP, core, 1992, what an album. What a memorable, rocking album. And I cannot wait to meet the DeLeo brothers and hang out with them and pick their brain and ask them questions. Um, it's sad that Scott Weiland's no longer with us, but STP is still going. And I got to see them earlier this, uh, earlier in 2022 at the Redondo beach fest. Um, they had their guy, Jeff gut singing. He did great. He did great. He had a, a, a Weiland energy to him. I know he probably doesn't want to necessarily do that cause he's his own man and he, you know, he's doing his own thing. But if you're going to take over the responsibilities for these classic songs, these memorable songs, these legendary songs. You've got a huge uh, pair of shoes to fill. And I thought he did a killer job. I thought he had good rock and roll energy. I thought he gave a great performance. I, I They sounded fantastic. Um, and I'm excited if they're recording more music. I think Robert released some solo music recently. Um, so yeah, these are these are great songwriters and, and I'm, I'm happy to, I hope I get to be good friends with them. So that's STP's core. Thank you. It probably got darker in here during the course of the show while I was recording. Um, The sun went down. My windows were open, but the sun went down. I think I said at the top of the show that I'd had a crazy holiday season and I was going to talk about that. So I'll say that here at the end of the show before we close it out. During, um, During Christmas, Santa Claus brought the kids a kitten. Uh, we now have a kitten uh, named Loki, so that's definitely been interesting. He's outside this door, probably wanting to get in here right now. And then the other thing that happened to me was I got gout, you guys. It was terrible. Um, I am 44. I'll be 45 this year. But I, I had never had it before. Gout is essentially it's too much uric acid in your blood, and it causes your this crystals to form in your joints, and it causes a tremendous amount of pain. It was horrible. I'm still getting over it. It's been three weeks. And uh, they used to call it the malady of kings because it means you were eating really well because um, it comes from like really fatty, you know, meats. And they say don't eat game meats, but I don't really ever eat those. But shellfish is bad um, for you. And then alcohol is bad. And so it was Christmas time. I was definitely going to some events and parties and I wasn't really being that mindful of it. But um, it is incredibly painful. So painful. Anyway, so that's been my past few weeks. I haven't been in, in the um, ability to podcast, um, but I've got some coming at you for, for January and uh, lots more lined up to come. And it's going to be a full year of many episodes and clips coming your way. So 
Thank you again. Don't forget to check out my sponsor, DistroKid. Uh, 30% off, distrokid.com slash VIP slash waterproof. Um, go get that 30% off your first year. And uh, thanks again for joining me. I loved it. And we'll see you next time on Waterproof Records. Bye. Things are going to change. I can feel it. It's just going to be that kind of body.